This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Have you ever thought about the possibility that everything we hold sacred is meaningless? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was thinking about that just now. Were you really? I think about that every day. Really? Yeah. You know, I sometimes wonder, like, how do we make sense of, like, the human condition? How do we make sense of what we are doing every day? And this sort of, like, thread in my mind that maybe none of it means anything And uh, sometimes I get a a sense of existential dread based upon that. I don't know if you get that feeling. I get the dread. I definitely do. And it's something that I'm learning to deal with. Um, You know, just coming up against the fact that everything is kind of a big joke and we're sort of the butt of this big cosmic joke. But then I realize that there's a really good way to take care of those feelings of existential dread. And that's to always look on the bright side of life. Mm-hmm. 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 Interesting. Interesting. I see what you did there, and I like it. Yeah. So, hey, guys, welcome back to The Midnight Myth. We're getting started with uh, some existential philosophy, and uh, we're going to continue talking about stories inspired by our vacation because we went to three cities So we're going to kind of do three episodes based loosely on each story or each city that we went to. Some inspiration that we got from the cities we went to. And last week we did Vincent van Gogh, um, the doctor, um, and we did that based upon going to the Museum d'Orsay. I'm saying that probably horribly wrong. (laughs) Uh, This week we wanted to kind of intertwine the experience of London and Rome, and we thought of a story that does that in a unique way, and that is Monty Python and the Life of Brian. Woohoo! I'm I'm really excited about this episode because, uh, to be perfectly honest, it's the first time we've done an episode that is really about comedy. Um, and it's it's funny that we've made it through 25 episodes and a couple of bonus episodes of 
the midnight myth talking about storytelling and we haven't really delved into um, the mechanics or the um, the legacy of some of the greatest comedy in storytelling. Um, and so tonight we're going to do that by examining who, uh, you know, a comedy troupe that are often referred to as the Beatles of comedy just because of the incredible, you know, um, influence of their of their work on other comics and the sort of legacy that they've left behind uh and i think between the two of us um life of brian is definitely like the it's the tightest and it's probably the best monty python movie it's probably the best thing that monty python did you know our love of the holy grail aside um you know my love of the meaning of life aside and all of the gold that came out of flying circus I think Life of Brian is kind of their masterpiece. And so wow. it's exciting. Wow. Yeah, yeah, big, big, big. T- like you you just opened it up there. So like we went right to what is the best Monty Python before even, I, I, I love it. We can totally start there. Um, so just to give a little context, Life of Brian is the third and final film of the Monty Python Flying Circus. It is a uh, group of comedians uh, I'm going to try to rattle off from memory each one. So there's Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, and Terry Gilliam. I think I got them all. Yeah, you did. I and, thought I was going to have to step in there with a couple, but you did it. Yeah. So these guys, um, uh, they all kind of went to high British schools, except for Terry Gilliam, who's an American. And they formed this comedy troupe called Money Python Flying Circus. And it was this odd combination of surrealistic animation, cutting sarcasm, absolute abject, meaningless silliness, sketch comedy. And they did a few seasons. Most of their popularity came after the fact, like they were a little ahead of their time. Right. But after the season, um, after the series part of me was canceled by the BBC, it eventually at least got a foothold in America, which didn't have a good foothold, especially as Americans started doing a lot more drugs. They started realizing Monty Python's pretty great. Right. And uh, then they got together and they did a bunch of movies. You know what? I misspoke. I said earlier that Life of Brian was their last movie. I believe yeah, I Meaning, Meaning of, of Life, Life was the their movie. last movie. Then they did Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Monty Python and the Life of Brian, and Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. And... Uh, we're going to talk primarily about the meaning of life today. And life uh, I, with Brian. God, I've done that. I, we edited it out earlier. I'm just being honest with everyone. I've confused life of Brian and meaning of life. It's I confusing. guess because there's an overlap there in terms of their basic like message. But uh, in terms of which one's the best, um, I, I think life of Brian is the best movie. Yeah. 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 In a, in a like, what the fuck? And we're talking about Monty Python in the traditional sense, I guess. Right. I don't know if that applies to Monty Python because they're so weird. Uh, I would say that uh, Holy Grail is definitely the best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think more what I was saying is that it's like they're, it, it's the, I mean, it's the best movie. Like it works right. the best as a story. Yes. Because there is an actual story. Right. Most of their other and movies don't really have one. And it's, uh, it's commentary and it's philosophy, I think, are the clearest. Sure. In the fact that it has one where, like, Holy Grail doesn't really have a commentary or philosophy. It, some of the scenes have them, but the movie itself doesn't have one, right? Right. It's a bunch of, like, like loosely tied together medieval gags 
that involve some philosophy, some silly, and no ending. Whereas the uh, Life of Brian kind of has a more traditional, like, three-act structure. Right. Um, so what's Life of Brian about? So we're going to throw up the spoil spoiler wall here. Um, if you guys haven't seen Monty Python, Life of Brian, we're going to spoil the hell out of it. And in most things that we throw up the spoiler wall, uh, you should be, you should have seen this by now. Yeah. Audience. And if you haven't, yeah. get out, get out and see it. Um, even if you've, you know, dipped your toes into Monty Python, if you have or not, you know, get out there and see it. Um, it's a lot of fun. And it's, I think, like, more and more, um, more and more, like, actually relevant today. So I think you can learn a lot from the people in and, that movie. And yeah, and I agree there. And I'll say this, Monty Python is polarizing. Nobody watches anything that has to do with Monty Python and has a sort of laissez-faire, blah attitude. People either instantly gravitate towards it or instantly don't get it, don't like it, and want to turn it off. I was about to say, like, have you, like, do you know anybody who doesn't like Monty Python? Yes. They're I don't. Also, they're also called not cool people. I don't know anybody who doesn't like Monty Python. Yeah. Uh, you really, like, like, I always say that people that don't like Monty Python don't like layers. And I think that's one of the things that I want to talk about. Is Yeah, the, let's the, get in. Yeah, the comedy of Monty Python has to do with layers. So at the onset, there's a super silliness, absurdist nihilism that Monty Python's comedy kind of represents. And then you start peeling back the layers to see more and more and more in each and every joke. One of the reasons that they appeal to sort of people more on the fringe of society. So if you're dropping acid uh, and watching Monty Python, you're like, oh, I finally get it because every single joke has about four or five different jokes in it that don't always, that aren't always being spoken or being said um, because you can also lose yourself in just the pure like absurdism and silliest silliness that they represent. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you're, you're getting onto something when you say, you know, there's layers and there's always a joke kind of right underneath the layer of the last joke. And um, you know, to, to really dive into the, the comedy of Monty Python, um, you can, you can start to really explore it from the lens of like the mechanics of what makes a joke funny. And this is something we were just, uh, we were just talking about is some of the mechanics of Heard. really great comedy, which include things like subverting of expectations. Uh, you don't laugh, you know, necessarily at something just because it's, um, you know, somebody slipping on a banana peel, like sometimes that'll make you laugh, but it's got to have a little more than that. So if you, you know, see a couple of old ladies in the laundromat and you expect them to have a conversation about, you know, their grandkids or this spin cycle or something, um, but then it turns out they're actually having a conversation about Jean-Paul Sartre, um, which is a an excellent um, Monty Python sketch from Flying Circus that we just watched. Um, comedy really hits home when it deals with a subverting of expectations. So someone that you don't expect to do a certain thing, do the thing that's unexpected. And that produces a laugh because laughter is often produced by seeing something unpredictable. It's a, it's a really unpredictable reaction to something. So to have an element of surprise is, you know, one of the better ways to provoke a laugh. Uh, but to peel those layers back, the next thing you really need to have 
comedy that truly reaches people is some inherent truth or some inherent uh, comment on the human condition. And this is, it's funny as I'm saying this, it's so, it's so tied in with how to make a story successful too, um, you know, to give people something that they maybe haven't seen before or haven't looked at in a certain way. But then when you peel back the layers of just the, uh, the initial impression, the reason a story sticks with you is because it speaks to some truth about the human condition, right? Totally agree. But those are the laughs. Those are the jokes that we never forget. And sometimes when we interact with media, um, when we interact with a story and our reaction is to laugh, that laughter can sometimes drown out um, our ability to meditate on it. So a serious story that does all of these things, we walk away like we need to think about this serious story. But something where we laugh and we, we joke and we, we, we laugh, and, but we don't walk away necessarily with, hey, what did we just see? And why did we just laugh at this? And Monty Python, I think, as a comedy writing group, understands that better than anyone. Absolutely. And to them, I think they were sort of the original punk rock comedy writers. And when I say punk rock, I mean punk rock not in a musical sense, but in an ethos, in the idea that nothing is sacred, everything can be torn down. And when you tear it down and you look at it, it doesn't really mean what you thought it ever meant. And what do they do in the life of Brian? Is they tear down in, I think, a respectful way, but they tear down the uh, origins of the Christian religion in ancient Roman Judea, um, ancient Roman Ju Jerusalem, with this story of this guy, Brian, who was born next to Jesus Christ. On the same night. On the same night. In just a nearby manger. Right in the nearby manger in Bethlehem, the three wise men accidentally go to Brian's uh, sort of manger right before Jesus's. And right out of the, the gate, we get these parallels between Brian and Jesus. Right. They truly live these parallel lives, but Brian is in every way the unremarkable kind of analog for Jesus. So he, you know, the same age, uh, born in the same place, the star led to, uh, you know, to a manger nearby. He's, uh, he's at some of Jesus's uh, sermons on the, on the Temple Mount, right? Oh yeah. So uh, while so not not the Temple Mount, not to be the history snob. I don't. But I don't know anything about any religions. I'm sorry. No worries. The Temple Mount is the area in which uh, Titus, the Roman emperor, uh, you know, about a hundred years after Jesus lived, burned the Jew the the Jewish temple. That's called the Temple Mount. So, uh, but then very next scene after I'm a Unitarian, everyone. I'm sorry. Yeah. No worries. I'm a Roman history snob. So. That, that's how I know that, because that's part of Roman history. But anyway, I digress. The very next scene after the uh, birth of Brian is we see him at the sermon in which Jesus is talking, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Oh, it's nice, the meek. And then we see a bunch of people all the way at the back, one of them being Brian and his mother, and they can't hear Jesus. So all they're doing is sitting there, uh, it's kind of like trying to hear him, like yeah, like speculating as uh, to what he's saying. Did he say, "Blessed are the cheesemakers"? Blessed are the cheesemakers. And so then this guy goes, "Well, it's not to be make taken literally. It's blessed all proprietors of dairy products." <laughs> 
And then there's a debate between other two people about how big someone's nose is. And so you kind of get this idea that we're walking right into these shoes of someone there who lived next to Jesus, who's there listening to Jesus preach, but they're at the very back. They're obviously not important to Jesus. They're obviously not important to anyone. And they're just bickering with each other. And what does it escalate in? It escalates with them actually getting into like a physical fist fight. They're hearing the word of God. They can't like hold it together just to listen because they can't make out the words and they get into a fist fight. And that's the beginning of the fucking movie. Right. And they're completely unremarkable people, right? You know, they, they kind of heckle and they, uh, you know, postulate and they, you know, imagine that they, you know, the John Cleese character who's like, oh yeah, all proprietors of dairy, but he's this kind of upstanding sort of, oh yes, I understand what this man is saying. And so I'm going to sort of. The liberal elitist. Right. Yeah. Oh, I get it. It's not just cheese makers. Meanwhile, they're not hearing it correctly at all. And just totally mansplains it. Yeah. But then at the same time that we see the surface level, there's this other also underbelly joke, like how many of Jesus's words were actually misunderstood. Ooh. So like right out of the gate, they're introducing this idea that, hey, the people that hear the, the, the divine prophecies of Jesus may be getting it wrong. You know, like they're the closest characters that we've ever seen to Jesus, but getting it incorrect. So they've already started with this idea that the thing most sacred to us, the word of God, could potentially be wrong. Be a game of telephone or whisper down the lane. Absolutely. So they're already just like upending the idea that we have this like clarity of understanding of the word of God. And they do these, this layer right in the first scene. And, um, and it sets the tone of layeredness. And that's the thing that I like about their humor and I like about this. Can I jump forward to the other scene I really want to talk Please about? Do. Or did you want yeah. to say something first? I mean, I just wanted to say... Uh, we very quickly get the um, the sort of, not the thesis, but we get, uh, you know, a layout of what this movie is going to look like. We understand that this movie is about the outskirts of the origin story of Christianity. So it's about the regular people in the outer circle. When, uh, you know, that subverting of expectation, when you expect a movie about, you know, the birth of Christianity to be about Jesus and his inner circle. But we're going to zoom all the way out and show you the regular ass people who are just kind of following along. Absolutely. And flashing forward. So just a brief little historical antidote. The movie takes place in Judea, not an actual modern place. Um, but that is the province in which the capital was a uh, province of Rome in which the capital was um, Jerusalem. And uh, it's the sort of where we would have ancient uh, Israel for the most part kind of has the birthright in ancient Judea. And uh, you know, the, the, the ancient Hebrew under the Rome, the Romans, yeah, they were kind of pissed off. They didn't like their uh, ruling elites uh, who they viewed as kind of corrupt priests pretending to be religious, but really trying to gorge themselves off of the wealth of the Roman empire. They didn't really like the Romans who were these monotheistic pagans. And uh, so there was a lot of like upheaval and tension in, in that environment. And it ultimately culminates in the great Jewish revolt, which is a, you know, major point 
for anyone that studied either ancient uh, Jewish history or ancient Roman history knows about it. And so we're seeing in, in the life of Brian, some of the people that are kind of fermenting the sows of, Hey, we should revolt revolt against uh, the Romans and this group of characters who make up this terrorist organization called the people's front of Judea. And there's this great scene in which they are kind of listing all the grievances against Rome, the people's front of Judea, that is. And the main character, Reg, played by the immortal John Cleese, um, says, mm-hmm. says, and what have the Romans ever done for us? And the, the, the comedy, and I do no justice to it, is that slowly every member of the you know, people's front of Judea just raises their hand and lists a like either an economic, cultural, or educational advantage that they've gotten from the Romans, um, down from the aqueducts to the sewers. One of them even like mentions the wine. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, wine's actually pretty great. I drink wine all the time. Another one's just like, you know, well, you can go out in the street at nights. You know, like, (laughs) oh yeah, they're the only people that can really keep order in a place like this. And then eventually the, the character Reg goes, okay, so apart from, and he lists every positive the thing the, road, the, the Romans wine, do, yeah. the aqueducts, this. What have the Romans ever done for us? And one guy goes, peace? And that guy goes, peace? Fuck off! <laughs> and so the reason I highlight this scene is the layers. So one, when you watch it, it's just funny. Right. Like, it's just funny watching these terrorists not be able to make an actual argument why they should be against the Romans. But you peel back the other layers, so who are these actors? They're all British. Right. So historical fact, no empire ever controlled more physical territory, more land than the British Empire did in the history of humanity. Literally, the descendants of the biggest empire in history are the British. Now, the, this generation are one generation removed from that empire. So that empire is essentially have now been given back. So these are people that uh, were born out of this empire and see the tail end and its collapse and failure, right? They are talking as the Jewish. None of them, as far as I know, are actually Jewish. They're the Jewish characters, though, making the case for the empire. Right. Even though their characters are those that hate the empire the most. That are so-called oppressed by the empire. And in reality, they can't make an actual intellectual argument for anti-imperialism because they're like, hey, the empire has done nothing but give us material benefit. And that's the layer there that is just like, it goes so deep that they are like you know, the British people pretending to be Jewish, uh, hating on the empire that they're actually benefiting from as the ultimate like evidence of anti-imperialism. Right. Because, you know, in no way are they actually trying to say in that scene that the British Empire is okay, right? That's not the point. Is like, oh, everyone should like living under the British. They're saying, how fucking absurd is all of this? People living under an empire could be benefiting under the empire, but they want this thing called freedom, uh, which means that they won't be benefiting under the empire, so they're willing to kill for it. And then you walk away from that scene being like, one... It's superbly acted, it's superbly directed, and it's really funny on its own rights. You start peeling that fucking onion, and you're like, holy shit, there's so much happening in this 
one little scene. This one little scene that is one joke. I mean, it's a drawn out, it's a drawn out joke, but there is only one joke going on. Absolutely. And it's inconsequential to the, the plot as the whole, other than exposing that, you know, these people that run the PFJ are just a bunch of nitwits. Right. And, you know, another layer of the PFJ and the way that, um, that this organization interacts with other characters and organizations in the, uh, in the movie is that a lot of this was uh, criticism of left-wing uh, activists at the time. Um, so when you think about Monty Python, um, obviously you're going to go straight to the absurdism, this kind of surreal comedy, but you can't watch uh, Life of Brian without saying these guys are, are doing their best to undercut institutions, whether those are imperial institutions or religious institutions. And you'll see that in Flying Circus, too. You'll see that in Meaning of Life, when every sperm is sacred. You know, you'll, see, you'll see that all over Monty Python's oeuvre. Um, but to see, and I'll rewind a little bit to the scene where we're introduced to the People's Front of Judea. Please do. Um, because I jumped, I jumped, I went from the first scene to like the middle of the movie. I apologize, everyone. Right, but we see a sound. God, I'm just remembering this scene and it's cracking me up. Oh my it's, God. It's really hard just to say this, to talk about Monty Python and not just slip into Monty Python voices and quote the fucking movie. Oh my God. It's but really Brian hard to do. Is like, Brian is like working his day job at the Judean Coliseum and he notices like, uh, you know, you know, the little group of the PFJ talking about... Um, talking about how one of the characters wants to have babies. Um, who can't who because can't, he's a man. He's a man and he wants to be a woman. And he's like, I'd pr- appreciate it if you all call me Loretta from now on. Uh, I want to have babies. and We can't have babies. You want to have babies? <laughs> Sorry, everybody. I had to. Um, but the meat of the scene is when Brian really introduces himself to the Judean people's, or sorry, to the people's front of Judea. But he comes up and sort of clandestinely whispers, are you the Judean people's front? Fuck off. <laughs> Reg says, fuck off. Um, we're not the Judean people's front, we're the people's front of Judea. Um, but there's this nasty kind of vindictive, just spite for the Judean people's front who are another organization who do and believe in the exact same things as the people's front of Judea. And it's a joke they return to later when they're carrying out their sort of terrorist mission. Uh, and they run into another organization that's doing the same thing. Um, yeah. trying to kidnap a uh, pilot's wife. Right. Yep. And, uh, they start bickering amongst themselves and they start fighting and, Brian, ever the peacemaker or the cheesemaker, I should say, um, you know, gets in the middle and is like, we shouldn't be fighting with each other. We should be uniting against a common enemy. And everybody just in one voice says, the Judean people's front? No, the Romans. Uh, But there's this incredible and just totally astute commentary on the, um, you know, the sort of absurd, you know, actions of of the of left wing organizations uh, and and how far people can take things to an extreme to where compromise is never an issue, compromise is never a, an option, and uh, the common enemy is often forgotten in the, in the face of the little differences that separate each and every one of us. 
And so rather than, you know, allowing individualism to flourish, it becomes this, you know, this mob mentality, this hive mind that, you know, tries to drive people into, you know, further and further extremes. And I don't think there's anything more relevant about that today. Oh, yeah. I mean, just to peel the, the onion back one other layer further, I to, to add and in an agreement with that point, I think they're ultimately saying that, you know, because of the fragmented resistance to imperialism, the underclass has no chance to gain equity to the ruling class. Right. They're making a very sort of Marxist argument that as long as the oppressed are divided and they don't realize that they're united, they're never going to be able to fight for or gain equal rights because they're too busy fighting each other. Right. And it makes that point... Um, while we get to just laugh our freaking, because it's actually really sad. It sure is. Like, if that's true, if it's true that the ruling class will always suppress the underclass because the underclass is too busy fighting with itself than uniting, well, shit, that's fucked up. Yeah. And it makes us laugh at this, like, very sad reality for the the ancient uh, Judean. And then you look at that and you're like, oh, man, that's actually... That's actually happening in many places on planet Earth right now, including America. Yep. You know, I you know I won't want want to pretend to be a, a expert on modern capitalist economics, but it does seem that uh, the there is a big fracture in sort of the under working class in America that doesn't unite. It appears to be to me on on like racial lines. You know, in ancient, in the, you know, in the life of Brian, it's all about on, you know, what Judean people front or non-people front you're in. Yeah, it's like, it's how liberal are you or like how, how anti-Roman are you? Or no, it's even, it's even simpler than that. Right. Who thought of the plot first? Right. Yeah, you know, well, I thought of it first, so it's my plot. Even though they have the same goals and the same plot, you know, and so I think they're, they're making a, 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 a definite commentary there and, um, and one that like, has profound sadness when you like you you step away from it but god damn it's so fucking funny and like the ability to just laugh at ourselves and that's what i'm getting at with that you know that fundamental truth about the human condition because those jokes wouldn't hit so hard if we didn't completely understand them and feel like they were a part of us and i think monty python excels at finding some real universality in their jokes uh and and i think you know it's it's easy to it's easy to look too hard at you know the the petty problems that divide us and, and i'm not saying that people's problems are petty but i i sometimes think that you know a lot of the things that really keep us apart are things that should be bringing us together right our problems aren't but our prejudices are right right and as as much as as it might pain us or make us sad to look too hard at those things, Monty Python also provides the you know the, the antidote for this. They they give us an out, and I think uh, you know I I try sometimes to come up with a sort of unified field theory of Monty Python, um, and I I think the best I can do because you can you can really pull together a lot of. Uh, common themes and common threads in the kind of philosophies that emerge from 
uh, from Monty Python, but it's really hard to nail them down because there's just so much goddamn material and there's so much that they're saying. And they're um, so all over the place, too. Right, they yeah. are. But you you see these threads of um, of existentialism. You see threads sometimes of nihilism. Um, and you you see you see, you know, the dismantling or the undercutting or subverting of institutions. Um, but at the end, you know, you always want to look on the bright side of life. Absolutely. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. And sometimes if you tell a really good dick joke, you can run away from the person that wants to execute you, which is a Five-minute scene in the movie. It is such a good scene. Which is just all one biggest dickus of a joke. Right. And and Monty Python, you know, as much as I'm saying that they're the Beatles of comedy and that their influence has been just felt far and wide, it, it's, it's important to call out the influences on Monty Python because we would have no Monty Python without the goon show and without other, um, other British comedy and other sketch comedy kind of emerging. But we watch a five-minute biggest dickest joke scene that is straight out of William Shakespeare. <laughs> William Shakespeare was the master of the dick jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All respect due. For those that don't know, there's just one point where it's just an a entire joke about the Pontius Pilate has a horrible speech impediment and uh, he's just repeating the name with his speech impediment, biggest dickest over and over again, trying to see if his, you know, soldiers will break down and laugh and they break down and laugh so hard. Brian, who's about to be executed, gets to just run away and be free because Monty Python is not, that's the thing that I like, like the best about it is that they're not highbrow. No, right? like, like we're heavily no. intellectualizing it. Like they make dick and fart jokes all the time. But it would be unwise to assume that there is not incredible intelligence there. And we know, you know, these people went oh, sure. to Oxford and Cambridge and Eton and whatever. These are really, really smart fucking guys. Um, but Agreed. I think the bravery to be a smart fucking guy and make a dick joke and a fart joke in your really smart commentary on religion is just like mind blowing. Yep. Ab yeah. ab absolutely. Like I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and I would encourage all of our listeners to, uh, to especially those that may not be in the camp of Monty Python. So a lot of people look at Monty Python and judge it as British and hence bad because they're like, I don't like British comedy. I don't know who these people are who don't they, like British they, comedy. They exist. They, don't they introduce me to them, please. They absolutely exist. And you know what? They're well-meaning and well-intended. Um, but I would encourage them all, whatever substance lubricates your brain take a little of that substance pop on some monty python and have a good time wow nice i'm encouraging recreational needed, drug use i've never needed recreational drugs to enjoy it uh well but, uh, maybe that substance is you know uh, you know a nice glass of scotch that's a recreational drug that i happen to be sipping right now nice um, so whatever that yeah. though that is, you know, get yourself a little loose. That's what I'm saying. Loosen up a bit, watch Monty Python and go on the fucking weird train and, and watch it make, especially in the life of Brian, watch it make one of the most interesting, um, critiques I would say of religion. So it doesn't refute religion. 
Not at all. Like it's super important to say that they are not tearing religion down completely because we start with Brian seeing and listening to Jesus. So we get this idea that that Brian recognizes the the event that Jesus is there and that that this is an important and that it's changing the world. But what happens to Brian as he's trying to escape Romans? So his whole motivation as a character is to try to get laid. Mm-hmm. He's in love with a girl in the PFJ, the People's Front of Judea. He tries to join the group because he wants to impress her. Right. In his ability to uh, try to impress her, he gets deeper and deeper into this, and the Romans are coming after him, and he accidentally kicks a preacher off of a stage, and he's standing there trying to preach just to kind of like be a little incognito, because apparently in ancient Judea, preaching's incognito. And uh, uh, when the Romans come, he just starts preaching some like utter nonsense. When he sees the Romans don't pay any attention to him, an entire group of followers think he is preaching the gospel, and then they start following him. Then they start worshiping him. Then they assume he's the Messiah. Then everything he says brings forth some forth different miracles. And in it, he's just like, can you just like leave me the fuck alone? Right. You know, at one point, you know, he just says, fuck off. And they're like, how should we fuck off, oh Lord? Right. They find a, a gourd that he touched and... You know, the woman with the bangs is like, he touched this gourd. It's a magic gourd. And it it just highlights some of the, you know, and it's, it's, it is critique on religion. I think there is quite, quite an admiration for, for it, like hidden within, but there's this just, just absurdity and, and craziness in the fact that people will follow a gourd because they think it was touched by some guy named Brian or, or, or a sandal. They also, he loses a sandal. And then there's one part where you see a bunch of followers holding sticks with their sandals because they're like, the sandal is a sign. And that's so stupid. Right. But how is that different than like having the finger of a saint in your church? You know, how is that different from relics? How is that different from other symbols that we carry today? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's an act of faith, uh, in something that might be totally arbitrary. I would say to me what they're making a comment on in once we get to the point where Brian is confused for the Messiah, they're making, I wouldn't say a comment commentary on religion, but a commentary on um, people looking for an answer. Exactly. And being able to her like hive mind into that answer without being able to think critically on their own. Yeah. There's a, there's a thing that I've said on the podcast before in, and it's part of, you know, why I love stories and storytelling so much is that human beings have uh, an innate and natural uh, tendency toward pattern recognition, which is why we would see a man in the moon or why we would kind of project, you know, human feelings on animals, that kind of thing. Um, and so there's sort of this innocent desperation into like, our life is not exactly what we want. So we're just looking really, really hard for an answer. And like, maybe this magic gourd is the answer. So I'm just going to put everything and every pattern that I can possibly recognize into it. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's the point that they're making in the life of Brian that, Hey, if everybody is ready and willing and wanting to follow a Messiah, there's a chance they might fuck up and follow the wrong one. Right. 
Yeah, and and this is the kind of zoom out feature of the the like outskirts of of Jesus. It's like history is such a history is such a series of coincidences and accidents that like what if things went just a slightly different way? What kind of world would we be looking at? You know, a world where we hold our sandals up on sticks? Totally possible. Oh, you're you are talking to someone that loves history. So, uh yeah, I mean, I think you know, they're engaging in in Life of Brian from a historical perspective into uh, counterfactual reasoning, something that a history student is encouraged to do uh, because they can certainly, through understanding counterfactuals, which is a, a, an imaginative and creative exercise, it helps understand the, 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 the raw causality of events. Right. So if I can say, what happened if... What would happen if this event did not happen? I know that's a little confusing. So what, what would happen if there was no George Washington? What would America look like? Right. A historian, or rather a, a student of history, uh, no historian would actually write this, but a student of history might actually think about this because as they think about it, it would help them understand the importance of George Washington. You know, because we could say, Maybe America doesn't win the Revolutionary War without George Washington. You know, uh, maybe someone else wins the, the Revolutionary War, but they're from the North and they hate slavery. And our first president is an open abolitionist. What would our country look like then? Wow. You know, like. Or, so- you know, what if, for those of you who have recently seen Dunkirk, what if, you know, the Germans don't call off the tanks and the evacuation of Dunkirk is unsuccessful and Britain surrenders and maybe Germany wins the Second World War? We have the man in the high castle. Right. And so that teaches you how powerful this one event person thing could be. And so Life of Brian kind of engages in this sort of counterfactual reasoning. What if the real Messiah is there, but the wrong Messiah gets the fake Messiah the accidental Messiah gets right. worshipped. Right. You know, what would the world look like then? And I think what it's what it kind of tells us is like, hey, if we can't think critically, we'll never be able to differentiate between the real and the fake Messiah. And right? it's it's also, you know, it's also a a thought experiment on like, yeah, that also could have happened. Like we could have actually started following the wrong Messiah and every single thing that we do is just a series of happy accidents, which means there might be no divine will. And we're probably just part of one really big cosmic joke. I mean, that which is, I think is a very Monty Python thing to say. That is a, a thing that I think is worth considering. What if every major player in history, whether that from Jesus to George Washington, it's just an accident, just happened to be the person there at the time. You know, and if that's the case, does history even matter? And does any of it matter? It's a question that Monty Python flirts with. And they actually, in a weird way, answer it. They say, yeah, listen, don't worry. It might be heavy, might be tough, but, you know, give a whistle. Yep. You know, just look on the bright side. You know, at at one point at the very end, when everyone's being crucified and everyone's dying, a character just starts singing a song about just look on the bright side of life. Yeah. You know, like, cause maybe we, cause like all of these questions that we're answering, we don't have answers to, right? All of the questions that the movie, you know, raises, it doesn't have answers. But at the end of the day, it's just like, listen, what are you going to do? 
You know, like we don't have answers to all of the biggest questions. How are you going to live your life? Smile, whistle, sing a song, and realize that it's not all as fucked up as you think it is, even if you're dying. And that's kind of what like the point of religion sort of should be, right? It's like, we don't really have answers to all of these questions. We might have some ideas, but all I can really do is like give you a good way to live your life. That's a loaded question. Um, Wow. You know, I don't know. I've been recently really from the trip, like rediscovering and rethinking religion as a whole. Yeah. Um, You know, in in a way that's very different from what I did before going on this trip. Um, You know, wow. I don't know, man. That's a big question. I, I think there's a lot of truth and wisdom to what you're saying. I don't know if I'm ready I think, and I definitely I think, don't mean to throw absolutes out there. Oh no, no, saying, it's not a dogma. You know, you're not, yeah. you're not coming up with a rule we all need to follow. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, I think. But I'm saying, like, why, why does humanity need religion? And this is also a big question. But I think a huge, huge part of it is just like we don't know what what we are. We don't know who we are or why we're here, and what's going to happen next or what came before. But like. Let's try to live a good and happy life and do the best thing we can for each other and ourselves. Yeah. And a lot of it is like, hey, we found these general principles that kind of help us not to be douchebags. So let's pass those principles down to the next generation yeah. so that, you know, hopefully they're not douchebags. And that's in its purest form, because a lot of uh, a lot of religions have created douchebags and, and led douchebaggery and war and hate and crusades and horrible, horrible things to happen. Oh, sure. So we're what, not what, in what, any whether, way. Whatever. Yeah, we're not perfect, right? Like whatever the intention was, you know, if your intention is to save mankind and you wrote down some things that you thought would save mankind and people started to believe, hey, maybe this might save mankind. And then someone's just like, that's a really good idea. I'm going to kill everyone that disagrees with me. Ugh. And you're like, wait, hold on. No, 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 we're not. That's not what we're trying to do. Yeah. You know, maybe that'll happen for a thousand years. You know, who knows? Um, you know, being alive is hard. Sure is. Figuring this shit out is hard. But, you know, and life can sometimes be a piece of shit when you look at when it. When you look at it. And uh, life's a laugh. You know, death's a joke. It's true. You'll see, you know, it's all a big show. And just keep them laughing as you go. Just remember, the last laugh is on you. And always look on the bright side of life. I can't really whistle Here's or sing. trying to whistle. God, I fucked that up so bad. I can't whistle or sing. Sorry, everybody. Um, if we haven't inspired you to uh, watch Life of Brian by now... Or take shame a closer on, look at some Monty Python. Shame on you. No, seriously, seriously, folks, Monty Python, um, to me, I think the way that you describe them as the Beatles of comedy, I don't think there's ever been a comedy group thing phenomenon that has had such a amazing impact on the way I look and see the world as Monty Python. For better or ill, I will leave up to you, dear listeners. I don't know if it's helped me or hurt me, but I know it's mattered. And um, I don't know of any other comedy that I can say the same. Yeah. This whole episode has just put a smile on my face, though. Absolutely. Even though we're we're debating whether anything ever actually has mattered before or will matter again, it's still like, you know, you got to love it because it's Monty Python. Yep. And I also think 
comedy serves an essential function because sometimes being able to work a thing out in a joke before you can work it out in reason, argument, or debate is, is it's the important way. Like I think of so many great comedians that have brought things to the surface from George Carlin to Chris Rock to Monty Python uh, to Roseanne that have been able to do things and bring things to the surface because their, their artistic forte is making you laugh first. Well, as long as you're laughing, they're going to point out what a fucking stupid backwards redneck hillbilly stuffy liberal, whatever the fuck you, whatever the fuck you are that sucks. Like they're going to be able to point that thing out to you and make you laugh about it. Yeah. Cause let's let face it. We all have something that sucks. And, um, you know, I think that's just such an important thing. And you know, we've, we haven't talked about it before. I'm rambling right now. I'm going to shut up and let's go to the game unless you have a boomerang. I want to say one last thing. And I just want boomerang. I just want to quote, uh, you know, a, a woman who's kind of a mentor to me, who is a, a comedian in Philadelphia and a really uh, kind of amazing person. And there are some things that she says about comedy. Like one of those things is when people are laughing, they're open. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way to talk about comedy. But I, I think she also says something great, like um, comedy is how I take the power away from the things that scare me. And, there's nothing that scares me personally more than the sort of void or, you know, the, the big heavy questions that I don't have the answers to. And, you know, sometimes a song and a whistle will help me take the power away from those things. Wow. That's amazing. And here comes the movie life of Brian to tackle the biggest questions in comedy. Yep. Well done. Let's play a game. All right. Uh, do your thing, Laurel. Hey, guys. So every week here on the Midnight Myth podcast, we like to play a little game to sort of bring a, bring a lighter little edge to the stuff we've been talking about. Uh, so we would love for you to play along at home. Please feel free to tweet us at The Midnight Myth on Twitter or uh, hit us up on Facebook to search The Midnight Myth podcast or visit us on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. We would love to hear from you. So this week on the game, we just kind of wanted to throw out a couple of silly things. So uh, hearkening back to the biggest dickus scene um, in Life of Brian and the multitude of silly names that came from that scene, we would love to hear what silly name you think you'd like to have in the Monty Python Roman ancient Roman universe. So, for example, you can be, you know, like um, Nautius Maximus, uh, Biggest Dickus. Incontinentia buttocks. Exactly. Those are all from the actual movie. Uh, do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. Sweatitian Ballist Maximus. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Absolutely. Which would translate to sweatiest balls ever. <laughs> <laughs> See, I I was gonna go a, just a little more classic, and, oh, okay, and just go gluteus maximus. Uh, you know that's good. I kind of feel like I kind of feel like you could do better. I probably can, but I didn't think of anything. Sweatitian ballist maximus is a damn good Roman name. One one that will be in the annals of great Roman history. It'll be in the annals. 
Annals. Annals. Annals of Roman history. Tacitus wrote the Annals of Roman history. That's where we got the word from. Tacitus people, a great historian, will write about Sweatitian Ballist Maximus. I think that's great. Isn't uh, that great? I thought gonna, that was a good name. We're going to throw some stuff up on uh, social media. Please just... We are? Just, yeah, I'm just going to try and get this going on social media. So please just respond with as many silly Roman punny names as you can think of. I want to see all of them. And get get really stupid. So the reason I got uh, to, to give a little clarity is I, I listened to a podcast called uh, The History of Rome because I'm fucking obsessed with Roman history and I've read as many books as I can get my hands on. And then I found a podcast about it. So why not listen to it? Uh, sidebar, if you like Roman history, good podcast. Um, and uh, I'm at the point where they're talking about the role of Domitian. So I want Domitian to Swetitian. I like it. You know, and then I had to do Swetitian because that just sounded cool. So Swetitian, Ballius Maximus. Maximus just means like most or best in Latin. You know, so I'm like, you know, sweaty balls, most or best. Mine is just most booty. Yes. And butt, butt muscles. That, that, that's where I got, you know, mine. And it was interesting because, you know, I took Roman history. I remember studying about Domitian, who was apparently like a total fucktard. And this guy has this whole argument that Domitian wasn't a fucktard at all. Uh, but just, you know, the people that wrote the history really didn't like him. And he was actually a pretty decent emperor. And I thought like, wow, that's cool. So I'm going to honor him by being Swetitian. I like it. That's I, I had a lot of thought there and why I came up with mine. I didn't have any thought in mine at all. Uh, listeners, if you want Laurel to come up with a better silly Roman Latin Whoa. name, please uh, tweet at us at uh, The Midnight Myth or drop a line on Facebook because I feel like she got off the hook this game. Until next time. Be kind. And always look on the bright side of life.